Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Whether it's a can't-miss drama, laugh-out-loud late-night show, or highly compelling documentary, most television viewers have at some point viewed original content from Turner. I'm Scarlett Fu of Bloomberg Television. As a media company, Turner broke ground developing programming that was heavily based on research and knowing its audiences. In this episode, we speak with John Martin, former chairman and CEO of Turner, about the importance of putting data to use and how technology will shape the next generation of storytelling. Well, we're here with John Martin. He is chairman and CEO of Turner. And as you mentioned, you went to Wharton and you went to Columbia for, to get your MBA. So your background is in finance, right? Mm -hmm. You're a finance guy at heart. Uh, you were investor relations. You were the CFO at Time Warner, Time Warner Cable before that. And then you made this transition to media. So that's a lot of years working uh, with investors, focusing on the numbers. What do you think has been the hardest part of the transition to content and distribution? Not focusing on the numbers? No. Uh, <laughs> There's still lots look, of numbers. I, you know, it, it, I've grown up in the Time Warner family. I've been at the company for almost 25 years. And, you know, people think if you're in finance, you're just sitting there reading spreadsheets. But the fact of the matter is I've been involved in the company strategy for at least 15 years. And as the CFO of the company, really a junior partner to Jeff Bukas, who's the chairman and CEO. And, and Jeff is always kind enough to include me in all of the strategic decisions. So it was actually a, a reasonably natural transition to go to Turner. Um, although it's been incredibly exciting to join at a time, and I've been the CEO of Turner since the beginning of 2014. There has never been a more challenging time yeah. to be in the media business, but there's also never been a more intellectually interesting time to be in the media business. So I feel like I'm in the middle of a storm but at the same time, like I've never been more excited to be to be part of it. Absolutely, and you talk about how you were exposed to the strategy from the get-go because you've been at Time Warner for a while now. Um, with the rise of digital, with the dominance of Netflix, all of that has eroded traditional television's share. Part of your response to that is to reinvent Turner from the inside out. Mm -hmm. Tell us what that means, and tell us what that means in terms of the kinds of investments you're making. Sure. And at the risk of repeating what you just said, that is the ambition that we have at Turner, is nothing short of a complete reinvention of the company from the inside out. So that means we are transforming the company from being a traditional uh, ad-supported basic cable network company that really cared about getting reach and maximizing viewership to all of a sudden the metrics that are really gonna matter in the future is fan engagement. We need fans, mm -hmm. not just viewers. And at the hub or underscoring that sensibility is technology. So when I joined the company in the beginning of 2014, in the United States alone, we had 29 content management systems. None of them spoke to one another. Mm -hmm. None of them had really any data in them to speak of. And over the past three, almost three and a half years, I'm really proud to say we're in the midst of a very, very significant technology transformation where we're moving our traditional broadcast TV up to the cloud, our content libraries, our applications are going up to the cloud, 
and, uh, and, and technology is, is, is literally something where we have dramatically increased our capabilities and it's going to be at the centerpiece of how we reach our fans in new and different and innovative ways because we can't think of ourselves as just a TV network company anymore. We're a fan engagement company. So wherever our fans are, whether on the mobile phones or iPads and whether they're in South Korea or in London or in, in, in Dallas, mm -hmm. uh, we need to be able to reach them in a seamless way. And so that's been a very, very fun part of the job, which is to really make significant investments in, in technology to support everything else that we're doing in terms of creating premium content. So you've been doing this for a couple of years now, this effort to turn Turner inside out. Where are you in the process? So would you say that you're in the it's second work in inning, progress. the eighth inning? Give us something specific. Say, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'd say we're in the fourth inning. Fourth inning. Yeah, no, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do. We, we uh, centralized all of our technology operations into one organization. We've made meaningful investments. Um, we are, are looking to honestly lead the industry mm -hmm. and this whole notion of personalized content, which I think the whole industry is barely scratching the surface of, but we're doing things like imagine in your household, do you have any kids? I have two. Okay. So good. This, we didn't practice this ahead of time, <laughs> but, and hopefully they're, I don't, how old are they? 11 and 13. Okay. So are they Cartoon Network watchers? Of Please don't say no. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, but imagine if they're watching Cartoon Network and they're watching the live, what we call the linear mm -hmm. stream, the feed, mm -hmm. we will shortly have the ability to serve up different Cartoon Network experiences to your children based on their preferences. This whole idea of personalized networking, which I don't think people are really thinking about right now, but it's going to completely transform the way that people enjoy media. So it takes on-demand to a whole new level, essentially. It takes on-demand to a whole new level. Imagine, I mean, how many people use Spotify? We want to create, Jesus, it's <laughs> a lot. Um, we want to make uh, our, our video sort of like Spotify, in the mm -hmm. sense that people can create their own content list. They can archive it, put it in libraries, access it whenever they want to, wherever they want to. And then at the same time, if they don't want to do it on an on-demand basis, we can serve different live linear streams to them at the same time. In fact. We made a very significant investment in 2015 in a company called iStream Planet, mm -hmm. and led by Mio Babich, who's a brilliant uh, entrepreneur and technologist. And I'm not just saying that because he's sitting in the almost front row here. Uh, but <laughs> Mio's still leading the company. But iStream Planet is arguably the country's leading um, distributor of live IP streaming. And Mio's done uh, uh, events like the Olympics and, mm -hmm. and the World Cup. And to be able to carry live video streaming at huge scale, where increasingly, and this is gonna be an important concept that we're gonna keep coming back to over and over again, media companies are gonna to have to increasingly own end-to-end -end the consumer relationship. Because for years, there was always an argument in media. Is content king right. or is distribution king? Well, I would argue now that neither of those are actually correct. There's a third leg to the school stool, which is the consumer experiences just as important as the other two. And I think Netflix showed us that because I would argue Netflix doesn't have the best content available in the world, but because it's easy to use, available, it works, it's intuitive, it's got great parental controls, it's got enough content, uh, that's why they're, and, and, it's, and it's offered at a, a really good value, mm -hmm. um, it's a fantastic product. We've got to evolve our business uh, in a way where we can be that and at the same time work with our traditional wholesale uh, retail partners rather 
who pay us uh, about five and a half billion dollars a year. Okay, so you talk about your fans, that's one customer, but what does it mean for your other customer, which is the cable providers? Won't they be mad? Won't they be upset that you are in pursuing the direct engagement with consumers and maybe even one day offering them something directly that they'll be cut out? I don't think cut out. We, we actually are working with them in many respects. I mean, we, we would like to do nothing more than to partner with them mm -hmm. and use them as a retail distributor, as a, as a marketer for us. Um, we just launched two new over-the-top services, what, what's called over-the-top, which is direct-to-consumer. We launched a product called Filmstruck, which is a complement product to Turner Classic Movies. It's a, it's a, it's a, video, it's a film library product for video enthusi movie enthusiasts. Mm -hmm. And we just launched another product called Boomerang, which is, uh, will eventually have probably 4,000 episodes of classic and iconic programming from both Cartoon Network and, 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 uh, and Warner Brothers. And we would love to be able to go to our traditional cable satellite telco partners and say, work with us, mm -hmm. be distributors of this product, we'll cut you in on the economics, and then we can kind of ride on their back, so to speak, as they offer it in all of their call centers, which is, because those businesses are massively transactional. And if they choose not to do that, then that's fine. We could, we could just go direct to consumer ourselves, which is what we're doing. But I think, you know, this whole, uh, look, it's an understatement that the whole distribution landscape is changing, right? I mean, you've got new players coming in, mm -hmm. you've got SBOD players, you've got virtual, you know, players that are being called virtual MVPDs. Mm -hmm. So the distributors are not going to have a choice but to lean into this and try to figure out how they're going to carve out their space if they're going to remain relevant in the future. And of course, AT&T is in the process of trying to buy Time Warner. How I haven't does, heard that. Really? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's is not that, official is yet. Is that a secret? <laughs> that might be one reason why. It okay. hasn't been approved, right? And we're still waiting right. for approval, government approval of that. Um, how does that purchase fit in with your strategy? I think it fits in perfectly, honestly, because as I was mentioning about technology, we've, we've been moving as quickly as we can. We started honestly, three and a half years ago from sort of a standing start. Mm -hmm. And we've made a tremendous amount of progress and I'm really proud of the technology team and, and all of our employees at Turner in terms of where we are now. But if you think about just in terms of sheer scale of what AT&T, the assets that they have, uh, if you think about the tech platform that they have, um, the, the, the data, which increasingly is going to transform not only how we monetize audiences, how we market our products and services, and then even eventually how we create content in and of itself. Uh, and they have, they own DirecTV, which has 25 million customer relationships in the United States. And then they have 130 mobile million, mm -hmm. 100, more than 130, 130 million mobile relationships. So that provides an incredible landscape for us to work collaboratively to try to innovate together, create new products, it gets us to our tech ambitions much faster than we otherwise could have done on our own. And I think the, the winner in all of this is gonna be the consumer, because I think they're gonna continue to get better and better products, and advertisers are gonna continue to benefit because we'll be much smarter about who is actually consuming the video content that we're offering up. So talent and personnel will be key in executing this vision that you have. Give us a sense of what jobs will look like at Turner in, in five years' time or in ten years' time. It's going to look fantastic. What kind of people will be hired? Are we talking about the traditional creative types? or? Well, we're always going to need creative. I mean, we're a premium content company. Mm -hmm. So if we, 
don't continue to create great stories, whether that's on the CNN side through just our live coverage of news or whether it's through Cartoon Network's creation of kids animation or does anybody watch Adult Swim? There we uh, go. We got a few people. You got some crazy animation and live action shows on Adult Swim, which has been the number one network delivering adults 18 to 34 for 12 years in a row. Mm -hmm. um, but we have the number one network, the number five network, three of the top 10, four of the top 20. We're the only company that has that. We have to keep investing in premium content. We've got sports that matter, which are locked in through beyond 2020. So we're gonna continue to want the very best storytellers and creatives. But at the same time, I would like Turner to be known more and more as a company that is attracting the best and the brightest technologists. What does that mean? What kind of technologists would find a job at Turner in five years time? We have a lot of Cornell Tech students in the audience. We have a lot of Columbia Business School uh, students in the audience. Give us a sense of what you'd be looking for, what you're looking for now. Well, what we're looking for are people that actually can bring product experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, we need, uh, you know, if you look at, for example, CNN, their, CNN's digital business is a very, very big business. It's hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. Um, and in five years, we'll probably contribute more to CNN's profit than the linear TV network. We need CNN's digital products to be the best in the world. We need Bleacher Report, mm -hmm. its products to be the best in the world. We need to have a world-class network that, as I mentioned before, from a consumer experience to make sure that we can deliver from the time when we encode and upload our video to the time when we deliver to the distribution uh, consumer electronics device, a seamless experience that always works and is world-class and is fantastic. And you know, one of the reasons why I think it's a difficult question to answer is I don't even know in five and 10 years what the technology jobs are gonna look like because my sense is we're probably gonna invent a few businesses between now and then that could completely transform what the complexity, the complexion of the company is. All right, well right now we know that there are a lot of skinny bundles on offer. More are probably going to come as well. So if you put your finance hat back on, uh, have you seen any impact on Turner's revenue from the advent of these skinny bundles? No, I think it's a good thing actually because- None whatsoever? No, it's, in fact it's been positive. Mm -hmm. Because we have deals with uh, Sling, mm -hmm. with Sony View, we have announced a deal with Hulu. They're expecting to launch, I think, sometime later this year. Um, we're in very constructive discussions with a number of other big scale players who have ambitions to enter the space. And so we have seen a slow decline in, in multi-channel TV subscribers in the United States. And, and in my view, part of the reason why that is is because it's just too damn expensive. And there are too many networks in the United States. A bunch of them have to disappear. Mm -hmm. So almost 90% or 85% of the nearly $5 billion in distribution revenue that we get are only in four networks, TBS, TNT, CNN, and Cartoon Network. Hmm. Those are leading networks. So our goal is to get those networks in as many packages as possible. And so I believe the virtual MVPDs are now approaching 2 million subscribers in the US a bunch of those, I don't know how many exactly, but a bunch of those subscribers are so-called cord cutters or people that otherwise dropped out of the population because they didn't want to pay $80 to get 500 channels when they didn't watch 480 of them. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got the most highly concentrated portfolio of must-have networks in the country. 
And that gives me confidence that we're going to be fine. I think the skinny bundles net, net are going to be a positive. So you mentioned CNN, obviously one of the more in-demand uh, networks that, that are out there uh, for consumers who want to invest in these skinny bundles. Um, what's your biggest challenge in sustaining the recent success of the network? I mean, this comes despite the president of the United States calling CNN fake news, denouncing your talent. How do you sustain the success that you have had? Look, I think, first of all, I give huge compliments to Jeff Zucker and the, and the, and the leadership team at CNN. Uh, CNN has never been stronger financially and editorially. Mm -hmm. And I believe, if you look at the, just the, the, the linear TV ratings in the United States, all news organizations are up. Like the, the, um, the human curiosity of news now that has been sparked by the presidential election, the, uh, the first 100 days of the new administration, and unfortunately, and this is unfortunately, but all the crazy things that are going on around the world right now, as evidenced by what happened in Paris today, today right. and the leader of North Korea saying that he's going to basically bring the military operations of the United States to ashes. Um, we're in an environment where there is going to continue to be 24-7 news cycles to the extent that I think we've never seen before. And I actually think companies like yours and companies like CNN, the journalistic mission uh, has never been more important. So this idea of fake news, I think is good for CNN. And it's good for companies like Bloomberg because more and more, I think people are going to be searching for those sources of news that they can actually trust. And so if you just look at the, the, the audiences that we're reaching at CNN, so in the United States on the live television network, the average age of, of, of viewers 58 years old. I think Fox News is 67. Mm -hmm. So we were 62 a few years ago, 67 and getting older. Uh, 58 today. If you look at the average age on CNN.com, I believe it's 48. If you look at the average age on the CNN app, it's 38. Hmm. And if you look at the average age on CNN Snapchat, it's 27. So we are reaching people across all of the various platforms. And I think that's fantastic. Like my daughter's 19 years old. She would never watch CNN the channel. But the two things that she goes to in the morning is Instagram mm -hmm. and, and Snapchat to watch her CNN news. So you're reaching her to another media. Exactly. Exactly. So this whole thing about fake news, you know, I don't subscribe to that. I mean, we're not in the fake news business. And, and look, some of what CNN does is by reporting objectively is, is sometimes we report things that people don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. But I'm very proud of the editorial quality and the, and the journalistic mission that we have and the seriousness with which the team takes it. Well, fake news, of course, is all in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. And you mentioned Fox News. We've seen how quickly... You think they're fake news? <laughs> no, I'm asking. I'm turning the interview on you. I have my moments where I wonder. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Um, we've seen how quickly Bill O'Reilly uh, has, has, well, not risen, but has fallen at Fox News. And we've seen that um, advertisers really helped push that along. There's a speed at which they move that was unthinkable maybe a year ago or two years ago. So the money in, that you're getting from advertisers, how confident are you that it's sticky, that it'll be with you? The minute that there's some interpretation of news that doesn't agree with someone, they could bolt. But that's like that in all of our businesses. I mean, I don't but think we But you have social media compounding it now. 
Yeah, I think so. I actually, and look, I, I'm not going to comment specifically on the O'Reilly situation, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not, I have no familiarity with what's happening with the advertising environment there. But I think the idea of advertisers moving more quickly to put their messages against brands that they feel comfortable with, I actually think that's a good thing. And we all have to hold ourselves accountable in the media to put out, whether it's in news or any of the entertainment, sports, kids, any of our genres, we have to be held accountable for what we do each and every day. And so if we reach consumers and fans in a way that we want to, I think the advertisers will be with us. If we screw up, I, I think we have to be prepared to have a financial, financial uh, effect to that. Mm -hmm. One thing you've noted is that there's money coming back to TV from some of the digital outlets. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's made a meaningful return. What do you think was a catalyst for that? Was there a specific tipping point that, that caused that? I think there's, and look, you know, digital is still growing quickly. I mean, mm -hmm. our digital businesses, whether it's CNN or Bleacher Report, they have some of the strongest growth rates in advertising across our company. So, but there's, a, there's definitely a fight for share. And, and let's face it, in the digital world, it's almost an oligopoly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, nearly two-thirds of all digital ad dollars are going to two companies, Facebook and Google, and they're probably taking 85% of the growth in digital. And I think what's been called into question somewhat a little bit is the efficacy of the metrics with which they've been selling advertising against. But what's really happening here is there's an arms race going on, and it's almost a race to the middle. If you're a company like ours, a premium content company, we're trying to develop the digital capabilities that we can go to advertisers and guarantee them audiences and return on investment and really be able to report out in a specific way to make sure that they're comfortable that their marketing messages are reaching the consumers that they thought they were going to. And, and that gets back to the technology investments that we've been making and, mm -hmm. and the impact that data is going to have in really revolutionizing the way that we're going to be able to monetize those audiences. On the flip side, the, the big digital companies are doing the exact opposite, which is they're trying to get into premium content, whether that's YouTube or whether it's Facebook. And it's a, we're calling it internally at Time Warner and Turner's, it's a race to the center. Mm. Who's going to get there faster? Can, can TV pick up the best of what has made digital distinctive and different and in the eyes of advertisers a really terrific buy versus, you know, can, can the digital players get their hands on enough premium content that they can convince the advertisers to continue to go in their direction? Look, there's going to be plenty of money to go around everywhere, but I like the chances of TV with the reach that we have, the brand-friendly environment, and the immersive, incredible emotional connection that we have to storytelling. And the scale is what the advertisers like as well. One thing, though, that can be frustrating for any TV viewer, um, if you're watching linear TV, the commercials are long, they're boring. Even when you're watching it on demand, you can't get past it quickly enough. You mm -hmm. can't even fast forward through them anymore. Mm -hmm. How do you address that? We're going to reduce the number of commercials per hour. Really? Yes. So this is the challenge. Uh, it's the challenge and the opportunity. Because I agree with you. Again, why? has Netflix risen so much in terms of popularity? And why has Hulu risen so much? You can binge Because watch. there's too much advertising clutter on traditional television. Mm -hmm. um, so we have announced on one of our networks, True TV, we've already taken a commercial ad load down in half. And I we started that in the fourth quarter of last year. We've been revenue neutral to up so far. So you may ask yourself, well, how is that possible? We've also reduced the commercial loads <laughs> on a number of our original programs on TBS and TNT. Are you doing more programming? What's, how are you so filling we're, it? So we're, we're making our programming longer. Mm -hmm. 
And so the way that we think we can make up for the reduced ad loads is we got to make the advertising better, more contextually relevant. We believe that our ratings are actually higher as a result of having reduced ad loads. In other words, if you looked at minute-by-minute minute ratings on traditional ad-supported cable, commercial starts, ratings go down, and then when the commercial ad pod is done, you hope that the ratings come back to where they were when you went into the ad pod. Well, if you have fewer commercials, you have higher engagement, higher average audience levels, and your ratings go up. Uh, we've also done some research that seems to indicate that if you make your advertisements more relevant and contextual, and I'll come back to that in a second, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and you reduce the number of them, recall of the ads go up at least 10%. So you have higher ratings, higher recall, and then if anybody watched March, anybody watched Like Basketball, March Madness? Anybody? Okay, a few people. You all, you all turn into, tune into sports more. Um, <laughs> we were putting on advertisements during the March Madness basketball tournament that had Charles Barkley in them, Samuel Jackson, Spike Lee, People, like, these were engaging, funny advertisements and- As premium content As premium right. content in its own right. And so we now have studios internally at Turner where we're producing our own advertising. What we're kind doing, of investment does, does that take? It's, at, well, I mean, it, it costs a little dough, but we're a big company. <laughs> we're all right. <laughs> Um, what you're describing sounds like a Super Bowl ad where people stick around to it's watch like the ads. like 12 months of Super Bowl ads, basically. <laughs> 12 months of Super Bowl ads. Um, well, that's what it's going to have to because ad-supported television is not going to be able to sustain if you continue to interrupt the, the, uh, the television shows with you know, very quick spots and dots commercials. It has, there's been so much innovation in distribution, in, in, in programming, and there has not been a lot of innovation in advertising. And I think over the next five years, there'll be as much or more innovation in advertising than any of the other areas of the business. Do you see your competitors responding and doing something similar? Yeah, and we want them to. Because this is a perfect example of, I think, the rising tide can lift all boats. Marketers and, and agency executives are saying, because everybody now, you know, the buzzword is data. We have data. Mm -hmm. Come, buy off of our data. Well, they have to go, Time Warner has its data, and Viacom has its data, and NBC has its data, and they're looking up and they're saying, can't we standardize this thing? Like, how do we, like it would be much easier if we could buy off of one set of data that we can trust mm -hmm. and that we can standardize. And so we just collectively made an announcement last week, us, Viacom, and Fox, uh, it's a consortium called OpenAP, maybe not the best branded name, but. You need um, a better name. But it's, it's essentially meant to begin to standardize the way uh, marketers and agencies can, can buy data, excuse me, buy audiences mm -hmm. based on data that they can trust. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, we invite other companies to come join. It would be good for the industry. Uh, you know, we want to compete on our product and our sales capabilities. We don't want to compete on we have proprietary data that no one else has. I think that's a losing proposition. All right, uh, speaking of spending money, and you mentioned sports earlier, uh, Turner has done very well with March Madness. Thank uh, you. Clearly, you, that partnership with CBS works it's well. Been great. It's, yeah, it's kind of a win win situation, which is rare. It, it's almost unheard of. Unheard of in the world of airing big sports events. You've also added esports on mm -hmm. TBS as well. Talk about what the next step is in Turner's investment in esports. Would you consider sponsoring an individual player, a team? 
Is that in the cards? I think, you know, we're looking at the esports strategy right now. Uh, well, we have been looking at it. I think I'm really proud of our sports team. And for anybody that doesn't, uh, I'm assuming everybody knows what esports was. The first time someone within Turner came to me and said, you know, we'd like to make an investment in esports. I'm like, I don't even know what that is. And then I have a 10-year-old son, and he spends more time watching professional gamers play than he does playing video games himself. And unfortunately, it's cutting into the amount of time he's watching Cartoon Network. Mm. So all of a sudden- Conflict of interest. I know. <laughs> and like he's this Minecraft kid. So he's watching this guy like Stampy Longnose, who's got one of the most annoying voices I've ever heard. He's like, hello, it's Stampy. It's his calling card. And, and I hear my son like laughing and laughing. And I said to him, I said, so is Stampy like one of the best Minecraft players in the world? He goes, no dad, he's average, but he's funny. Mm. So I all of a sudden then, it's like a click to me. I said, this is like a television show for him. This is content for him. It just happens to be about a game that he likes to play. So once I sort of understood that, we all got together, we moved quickly, we partnered with WME IMG, we created E-League. Mm -hmm. We've hosted now two tournaments, including one major. We've got a 10,000 foot production facility down in Atlanta. Uh, and this is an area that is just exploding and it's exploding globally. Arenas are getting sold out. Others are trying to look to start, to start up leagues. I think there's gonna be a massive amount of dollar investment that goes into this space. And we are uh, actively trying to figure out the best way that we can be in the midst of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of that is done live, right? Your son would go yeah. to uh, an arena to watch someone play mm -hmm. their games uh, and it's shown on the big screen. Yeah, I went to the initial, I went to the first ever eSports event Tournament? At Turner, mm -hmm. it was part of a tournament. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting in the back and there's like a mosh pit of gamers in the front. And, and it was a first person shooter game. And I have to admit, and this is, I'm embarrassed to say this, I didn't know what the hell was going on in this game. <laughs> it was moving so quickly and we had announcers and everything. But the only time I knew something exciting happened is when the mosh pit of gamers were going nuts. And they knew exactly what was happening. And then we also, we host these events on Twitch. And we were looking at the numbers of people that are watching these events on Twitch, and they are astronomical. And even for TBS, hosting esports events has brought millions of new viewers to TBS at an average age that's significantly younger than the average for uh, a normal TBS program. So I think it's really popular and important programming. And mm -hmm. you know, Turner's always done a great job, and this long predates me. But we're in sports that matter, uh, and we don't want to be in too many more sports. So. You know, esports is an organic way to try to exploit a global secular growth opportunity, but otherwise we're partners with March Madness, we're partners with the NBA, and we're partners with Major League Baseball. And golf as well, right? Yes, we host one golf, a major event. Okay. Um, we've talked about CNN, we've talked about Turner Sports. Uh, in the past, I know we've talked on our own, and you've identified some networks that are challenging when it comes to growth prospects and, and brand awareness. What are you doing to, to change that for, say, HLN or mm -hmm. True TV? How do you mm -hmm. sharpen the focus around that so that they get more fans, there's more engagement? Right. Well, True TV is, is actually a burgeoning success story. And, uh, and I'm really proud of Chris Lynn and the team there. Uh, I, think Chris, uh, I think True TV now has grown uh, linear ratings for six or seven quarters in a row against the backdrop where not a lot of ad-supported cable networks in the U.S. are growing ratings. Uh, and he's doing it through just really fantastic, engaging, and funny programming. Uh, and I think we're going to continue to do that. Um, True TV, its challenge is its brand awareness, as you said. Um, 
Uh, I, I'll never forget, I think I was watching CNBC the first year that March Madness was on, and, uh, and I knew that they were going to have a, 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 a few minutes talking about the tournament. I think it was Joe Kernan from CNBC that sort of said, like, what the hell is True TV? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think he was the only person that thought that. Um, but I think, look, we're very committed. I'm really proud that they're growing ratings. They're doing it by really thoughtful branding, really thoughtful programming. Uh, HLN similar. HLN is a bit of a challenge because it's an ad-supported network only. We don't get an affiliate fee for HLN. So we're completely, under Ken Jouts' leadership, uh, completely changing out all of the programming. So we have an all-female led um, on-air talent during the day now mm. between um, Robin Mead, Erica Hill, um, uh, Michaela Pereira, and uh, we have Ashley Banfield now on in prime time. And, uh, you know, I mean, they make tens of millions of dollars, um, but, but the brands that really matter most to us at Turner are TBS and TNT. So TBS, TBS and TNT are two of the four most profitable TV networks in the world. You mentioned that. So if you've got these four networks that you want to build things around, is there an appetite to shut down some brands perhaps, to, to exit, uh, to, to slim down, maybe pursue a less is more strategy? Well, we have, if, look, we'll do whatever it takes to be successful in the future, but we have no current plans to do that. Mm. Um, and, and, and all of our networks are making money. Uh, and, and as I said, HLN is going to have its best year financially this year. True TV will have its best year ever financially this year. Uh, and we have, a, we have 10 networks within our portfolio. Um, but as I mentioned, almost 85, 90% of our distribution fees are in four. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I think one of the most important things or one of the most important jobs that I have at Turner is to make sure that the company is in a position to be flexible enough to move in any direction necessary to sustain the the health of of the brands and the business overall. So um, having only 10, just to put that in perspective, one of our competitors, which I won't name, uh, I'll, I'll whisper it after. Um, but they have, you know, they have 14 networks that are below the top 60 mm-hmm. in popularity. So if, you, if your network is not one of the 60 most popular networks in the United States, I don't think you really have much in terms of consumer value. So that's a problem. Yeah. We, don't, we don't have that problem. There's a rethink there in that future, that mm-hmm. company's future. Um, speaking of the future, let's talk about where you go from here. Um, I'm here. Your name has been floated as a possible candidate to succeed Jeff Bukas, who's the current CEO of Time Warner. Um, so that's one possibility. Also, your name has you been floated. You want to put in a good word for me? <laughs> Jeff? <laughs> uh, your name has also been floated as a possible COO candidate of Uber. I saw that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm laughing because to poke fun at myself, I don't even know how to order an Uber. What? I know. So I download, this is a true story, it's just um, I'm, I'm not afraid to, to make fun of myself. I downloaded the app and I inadvertently signed up to be an Uber driver. <laughs> true story. So I kept getting these messages from them saying that I hadn't passed whatever class or like like benchmark level skills necessary in order to be an Uber driver. And I'm like, hmm. what the hell are they doing? And it only, so uh, no, I'm not, I'm not going anywhere. So um, probably not CEO tomorrow, but is that an assignment that would excite you? A company that's kind of um, at a moment where it's, it's certainly hitting its heyday, it's, it's 
got a lot of attention, both positive and negative. Right. Is that something that would excite you? I don't, look, I'm staying put mm -hmm. uh, un unless they don't want me. Uh, and, and I mean that. I've had an incredible career at Time Warner. I love working with my Turner colleagues. I'm really looking forward to the promise of what an AT&T Time Warner could mean. I think there's a lot of things that I could be helpful to contribute to make the company successful. Mm -hmm. And that would give me a lot of satis satisfaction. And uh, whether that means I get a promotion or not, I've already got a full life and, and an incredibly exciting job. Uh, I do think, uh, just as a quick aside though, I mean, I've got an unbelievable amount of respect for Uber. I'm not gonna go work there, but I've got an unbelievable amount of respect and it's just a great example of an entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial story and just thinking out of the box in terms of how technology can like transform people's lives. Mm -hmm. It has completely screwed up the traffic infrastructure in Manhattan. Yes. <laughs> because you can't go on a street without there being 27 Ubers. So um, everyone's it, double parked. We'd like the Mayor time. de Blasio to look into that, but <laughs> other than that. Well, I mean, I'm glad you bring that up uh, in terms of how technology transforms people's lives. What has surprised you the most about how technology is folded into media and, and vice versa? Well, I think, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be the most exciting, well, one of the most exciting areas of growth in media is going to be mobile. And, and how much, five how years much ago, programming do you watch on your phone? More and more. That's what's interesting because I would have, five years ago, I would have said I would never watch a full length anything mm -hmm. on, my, on my iPhone. Now I do. And I think the, and, and we see it in our own consumption of our own products and services, whether it's in kids, sports, where March Madness, the amount of mobile viewing is going up dramatically. Mm -hmm. And then at CNN, where mobile viewing, particularly on weekends when people are not in their offices and they're not on desktops, mobile viewing is, is growing like a weed. And I think um, that's an area where we as, as media companies, and, and Turner in particular, we need to think more about programming specifically for the device. In other words, and Jeff Zucker and I talk about this all the time, um, it's, it's not CNN TV and CNN digital, it's a CNN brand that is expressed differently to optimize itself on various devices. So we have dedicated people that work on Snapchat, dedicated people that work on Instagram, dedicated people that are working on the app. And we need that internal expertise because the way my daughter is consuming CNN on Snapchat is not the same way that someone is, is on CNN.com. So mm -hmm. I think um, that's one of the things that has surprised me the most because I thought mobile video viewing, uh, particularly on smaller devices, would be much more niche, and it's not. So does that mean advertising rates for ads on mobile devices, on iPads, on screens, will start to catch up with that of TV? That hasn't happened yet, right? No, it hasn't happened. Uh, I think, look, I think advertising dollars usually lags usage. By how long? Um, that's a good question. Um, it depends, I think, to your, to the comment that you made a little bit earlier regarding, um, and this is supposed, because again, I'm not commenting on this, but the, but the advertising reaction to what happened at Fox News mm -hmm. and how quickly it may or may not have happened, mm -hmm. I think, the advertising community is beginning to move much faster and, and really wants to adapt to new technologies in ways whereas in the past it was much slower. So mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know exactly when it catches up, but it's a, there's, a, there's a huge gap right now between usage and monetization. So there's an impetus on the advertisers' parts to, to be much more nimble and move quickly. Yeah, well, they wanna, they're gonna wanna be where the eyeballs are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and the, the elegance of 
advertising on mobile is getting much better. I mean, people are just getting much smarter in terms of how to show something. I mean, it, you know, the, the idea, and I'm old, so I don't see that well, but, you know, a banner ad on an, on, on an iOS device is impossible for me to read. But if you're scrolling through Instagram and you see like an elegant ad or an elegant ad that turns into video when you're scrolling past it, I mean, that could be in a very effective way to reach uh, a large group of people. What's the most memorable thing that you've seen on an on a iPhone or a small screen that, that, is that resonates? Is like a trick question? No, no, no. That resonates with you where you're thinking, oh, this is great. If they could somehow scale this or if they could do more of this, this would be huge. Just, just instances of it where you see flashes of brilliance from, from something experimental that's happening on a smaller screen, on a mobile um, device. Look, I think, okay, just, so, I mean, I could name a lot or a few. I mean, I think... If you look at what we're doing we with Cartoon Network, this, by the way, so no, I know. Yeah. Um, so Cartoon Network is doing a personalized network on mobile devices. Mm -hmm. So if you go to you know my Cartoon Network or the Cartoon Network app, that is it's adaptive learning, and there's a bunch of machines in the background with algorithms that it are understanding whether you like Teen Titans Go or We Bear Bears. There's AI dri driving yes. Cartoon Network. So I think AI on mobile devices is mm. going to be transformative. And I think the other thing, which isn't necessarily on mobile devices, but the other thing that I think is going to be huge, which we're just barely scratching the surface on, is virtual reality. So I think augmented reality, virtual reality, and AI uh, are three huge opportunities. So talk a little bit more about virtual reality and augmented reality, because that it gets a lot of buzz, it's get, it gets a lot of press, but you don't really see people doing it and taking, taking it up on a massive scale just yet. But I think it's early days. I mean, these are not easy to do. We, we were why selling... Is so, why is it so hard to do? I don't know. There's really smart people trying to figure out how to... <laughs> I put on those virtual reality goggles. I'm like, there's some brilliant people who are doing this. Mm -hmm. um, we were selling virtual reality tickets to March Madness. So you could buy a virtual reality seat that puts you in this amazing seat and you could watch the game from that vantage point. That's how did it do? Uh, I mean, we had—I uh, I actually don't know. I'll get back to you on that. Okay, putting you on the spot there. Go I on. I don't want to bullshit. No, no, no. Um, but that—that was—that was something experimental. No, but just, it, totally experimental. Uh -huh. But you know, I mean, I've seen so many uh, virtual reality demos, whether it's you know, Cartoon Network gaming, or sports, or one of the most interesting or gaming itself. I was in a. Uh, I was actually in an eSports virtual reality where I wasn't actually playing the game, but I was following a player who was. Okay. So my son, there's one of the teams, has a player named Taco. True story. He's like a 19-year-old kid who wears a, a ski hat like over his eyes, like up to here. Uh -huh. and, and my kid really likes this this uh, athlete, this e-athlete. Uh -huh. So you, you could possibly put on virtual reality goggles and not play the game, but you could follow Taco everywhere where he's going. And experience it with and him. And experience it with him. And one of the most crazy experiences that I've had in virtual reality was when I got dropped off in a street in Afghanistan with a CNN international correspondent. Mm -hmm. Just the experience, it sort of... Uh, was it frightening? I think in, in ways. I mean, I don't think it's going to be applicable to every single application of media. But I was never that high on 3D. I always thought it was a bit of, for, especially for TV, I didn't think people were really going to be that interested in it. But virtual reality will be a game changer. 
So how do we make sure, or how does the industry make sure that virtual reality doesn't go the way of 3D TV, which got a lot of buzz, but ended up being kind of eh? Well, I think at the end of the day, it's about the experience. And so we're developing applications that are specifically for virtual reality. And uh, I mean, I don't know, as a, as, a, as a parent, I worry that I'm gonna screw up my kids, like, because you don't know what it's doing to their brain. But uh, other than that, I think it's gonna be great. Um, <laughs> but I, but I, th I look at virtual reality in some respects as, as, the, as the evolution from narrowband to broadband. Hmm. Um, and, and I worked at AOL Time Warner at the time, and I remember that there were many people within the company that thought that broadband was merely a, a, an enhanced speed of, of narrowband. And, and I was sitting there saying, this feels like something fundamentally different. And I think virtual reality, while it may be more narrow because it'll be more applicable in certain areas than others, I think it's a game changer. What existential questions are you dealing with now that you thought was resolved maybe two years ago when it comes to your line of business? These are not easy questions. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> uh, existential questions. About you your line of business, about the prospects for your business. I think, um, look, I think with, in, in our traditional business, with barriers to entry and distribution falling, mm -hmm. and more and more, bless you, more and more ways, <laughs> my mother always taught me to be polite. Uh, well done. More and more ways for people to um, consume media or video content or, or even you know, Instagram looking at pictures, it's all taking up people's time. And time is, is arguably, in some respects, people's most valuable asset. So I think for our brands, which are powerful, mm -hmm. at the same time, making sure that they stay relevant in a world where there's just gonna be an explosion of availability of, of things for people to do, mm -hmm. I think it's the, the biggest single challenge that we have, which is why we're moving as quickly as we can to make sure that our traditional business brands stay strong, but at the same time, we're making huge investments in, in digital to increase our capabilities to get where, where our consumers are, and then over time, we need to build new businesses on top of that. All right, so. the demands for time, it's coming from every direction. Right. All right, on that note, uh, thank you everyone thank you for, for coming. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or email techevents at Bloomberg.net to get invited to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.